Our scripture comes from Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15. Joshua 5, 13 through 15. Once when Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you one of us or one of our adversaries? He replied, Neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped, and he said to him, What do you command your servant, my Lord? The commander of the army of the Lord said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, um, for the good word of, of um, the scriptures, and we pray that they would be like a seed that's planted in our hearts. May that seed germinate, grow, and bear fruit. Bear fruit for our lives, bear fruit for our neighbors, and for the whole world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, obviously, we're looking at Joshua this morning. And in some ways, Joshua could be the worst choice for a text right now. And let me tell you all the reasons why Joshua is a bad choice right now. Um, one of the reasons it's not a great choice is because of the current war in Gaza. The current war in Gaza, in some ways, you could trace that conflict. You could draw a line from that current conflict in Gaza to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is about a group of people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, going into Canaan, where there's a different group of people, and taking it over. Um, and even just a little bit of knowledge of the ancient Near East, in particular, um, how, the, how the, the story of the Jewish people has, starts there and continues on into exile and then finally in 1947, 48, a return um, makes you wonder if, if Joshua is right now the book we should be talking about. Another reason Joshua is not a great choice is because Joshua is very troubling for many Christians. Uh, many Christians would much prefer to sidestep a book like that. Um, it looks to be a book that's about genocide, invasion of indigenous people groups, colonialism. And in fact, Joshua was used for precisely that reason by many groups, especially Christians. Manifest Destiny, the Doctrine of Discovery. Um, the idea of Joshua, of this promised land that's given to a people, and all they have to do is sort of swipe away some of the folks who are there, starts to sound eerily dark and familiar, even in American history. And frankly, a lot of Christians have a hard time with the God of the Old Testament. Because the God of the Old Testament doesn't look like Jesus. The God of the Old Testament looks like a warrior God, a God of violence. A God, a one-sided God who only cares about his people and not the others. And many, many Christians have a hard time squaring that God with the God we find in Jesus. And so they would much rather 
us focus on the Gospels, focus on Jesus, and sort of leave these primitive bits to the side. So the smart move seems to be to step over it, to ignore it for now, especially given the context. You know, like, pay attention, get a clue, maybe this isn't the right time to be talking about Joshua. I have a, um, an unnatural propensity towards doing the thing that you should not do. Uh, I, I'm obsessed with it. And so as, I, as we were coming to the end of Exodus, we were looking ahead toward Joshua right before Advent. I'm, I'm looking at the book of Joshua. I'm thinking all the things I just told you. And I thought, well, you know what I should at least do? I should at least read the book. Let's just start with reading the book and see what happens. Maybe it does support the, the, the genocide of indigenous peoples. Let's read it and find out. Of course, I've read it before, but on it, to be perfectly honest, I've sidestepped it. I've sidestepped it over the years. This isn't the first time I've preached on it, but it hasn't been like in the top 10. And so, so that's what I did. I read it. And wouldn't you know, I think it's worth talking about. For the next couple weeks, um, my intention is... <laughs> My intention is not only to uh, look at Joshua, but to look at Joshua in the context of everything I've just talked about. All the reasons not to look at Joshua, I want to take Joshua and say, are those good reasons not to look at it? I, wanna, I do want to look at the war in Gaza. I'm not going to give you what you should think about the war in Gaza. There's plenty of research you can do on your own. But I am going to talk about the relationship between that war and the book of Joshua. I'm also going to talk about some of our concerns about violence in the Old Testament and how do we understand this in light of Jesus. Um, and that's why I'm doing it in two weeks instead of one. I'm just going to tell you up front that anyone who claims Joshua as permission for aggression, as a warrant for genocide, for wiping people off the map, are not reading the book. If they did, they would discover something much stranger, weirder, and ultimately more wonderful than their designs. This is not to say that there are not troubling verses in Joshua, so that's not going to be my other move where I ignore the bad bits and only talk about the cool parts, okay? There are troubling verses in Joshua, for instance, when he says to the Israelites to devote to destruction everyone in Jericho, the men and women, the young and old, even the oxen, the sheep, and the donkey. Donkeys I can understand. I think we all we are all right there with the donkeys. But sheep? Come on! Evil. It's over the top. It's way over the top. It's extreme. And in fact, that is the point. I'm going to come back to this later, but I want you to hold on to that idea that 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 language is, in fact, intentionally extreme for a reason. But let me just make some notes. Let's say we are readers of Joshua, and let's say we're, we're, we're looking at a, a global map, say, and we're, we're thinking, I would, I would love to take over this thing, this country. 
And I need a religious warrant to do this. I need some sort of religious backing to, to support my cause. And I pull out the book of Joshua. And I say, okay, Joshua, are you, are you going to give me permission to do this? And so I start at chapter one, and let's see what happens. Let's, let's start at chapter one and see what happens. And the first thing we find is Joshua talking a lot about being strong and courageous. Well, that's good. You know, that's what I need. I need strength and courage to go and take over this country. This is wonderful. But what's peculiar, and, and the peculiarities start very early in the book of Joshua, but what's, what is peculiar, first of all, is all the strength and courage has nothing to do with military preparation. Nothing at all. It has everything to do with following the Torah, following the law, following God's commands. And God's commands are like, don't covet your neighbor's ox. Not, here's how to build a military industrial complex. God does not set out to show how you were supposed to conquer a people in the law. It's actually how to live well in the land. It's how to live well with your neighbor, how to actually care for the foreigner and the stranger. That's the kind of stuff that's in the law. And when Joshua talks to his people and he says, you must be strong, you must be courageous, we're about to enter into this land, he says, be strong and courageous in the law, not military conquest. Okay, fine, Eddie, but there is military conquest, right? Well, sure. So they, they, they cross the Jordan, the Jordan River. They're in the southeast part of this area. They cross the Jordan River, and now they're in the land, and they're within eyesight of Jericho. I, I, I remember being on this, this hill, which is Jericho, ancient Jericho. Modern Jericho is now down low. But you're up high, ancient Jericho, and you can see the Jordan River from there. It's not that far. And this is a huge group of people. It says 40,000 people have just crossed the Jordan. So they're all across the Jordan now, okay? Within sight of the enemy. Okay, you gotta get ready. And so then Joshua says, okay guys, you ready? Make some, make some swords, make some flint swords. Brilliant, finally we're getting to it. Now we're gonna be uh, an unstoppable military power. Flint is very, very sharp. If, you're in the late Bronze Age, as these folks are, bronze and iron isn't on the radar yet, and so you're trying to figure out how to make something super sharp, make it out of flint, for sure. So these are gonna be super sharp. Um, Joshua says, make your swords. So they're all making their swords, just imagining you know, what they're gonna do to their enemies. And then Joshua says, here's what I want you to do with those swords. Use them on yourselves. Sorry, I want you to circumcise yourselves. That's right. The very first thing they do in enemy territory after they cross the Jordan is they circumcise themselves. That's at least three days of incapacitation. <laughs> at least three days. Now, that's not from experience, but I read that. So, again, enemy territory, swords in hand, in sight of the enemy. There, there is the enemy. Circumcision. This, is, this does not fit any playbook. You know, the guy who wrote, I, I can't pronounce his name, the guy who wrote Art of War, he's rolling in his grave, even though this is well before him. Um, all right, fine. Circumcision. This is, this, is, this is strange. Like I said, it's odd, but that's what they did. Now let's think about this for a little bit. Let's think about this in a more modern military context. 
when German soldiers, I'm getting a little feedback, I don't know if you guys are, but when German soldiers, or uh, frankly American Civil War soldiers, or many, many other soldiers told themselves that God is with us, the Germans had this on their belt buckles, um, I won't say the German, because I don't remember, but but, it, but they had on their, jer- on their belt buckle, God is with us. They never thought it would mean something like this. They didn't actually read the book of Joshua to imagine how you combine military conquest and devotion to Yahweh. Now, especially even in modern war, the idea of fighting with God on our side is nothing more than an inspiring fiction an idea that gives permission for atrocities, but does not actually change how one fights in a war. Here, however, there's a completely different approach to battle. The battles do happen. The battles do happen in Joshua. Many commentators have noticed there are four themes in these battles, four things that are going on. They're not straightforward battles at all. And they all start with W, helpfully. So the four things going on are this. Israel always fights against warlord kings, probably client kings of Egypt, which was a colonial superpower at the time and had invaded Canaan. And so I'll talk about that in a second. The second W is they go up against walled cities. There's quite a lot of villages, quite a lot of settlements without walls. Um, Those don't get attacked. It's the walled cities that get attacked. The third, they refuse to use certain weapons. That's the third W, weapons. Um, In particular, horses. They won't use horses. And then finally, they're extremely careful about wealth. Wealth. Um, There's no personal looting. And the most serious sin in the book of Joshua is committed by uh, a man named Achan. And it's for taking the wealth of the city of uh, Jericho. And then they lose an AI. Aiken, who takes wealth for himself. Okay, this is, this is really just scratching the surface, and I, I urge you to, um, to uh, do a little research on your own. And one of the things you can look up is something called the Amara letters. Uh, these are letters that were written to the Egyptian pharaohs. They were found in Egypt from the warlord kings in Canaan saying, help, 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 we're under attack, help. Um, this is your land. These are the kings and Canaan's talking to Egypt, saying, this is your land, come and help us. And Egypt is like, too many resources, we're not doing it. So Egypt had already invaded Canaan, had established a presence there, and Israel looks to be hyper-focusing only on the Egyptian presence in Canaan. What's fascinating about this is what the, the book right before this, or the story right before this, is the story of the Exodus the story of the Exodus from Egypt. And so this whole story of Joshua, what it ends up being is a continuation of that Exodus. It's a continuation of freedom from captivity to Egypt. So they're just continuing on this process. They're not free from Egypt in the wilderness, and then they say, hmm, how can we become, uh, how can we take a people captive, just like we did in Egypt? That's not what's happening at all. It's the opposite. How can we continue our liberation from Egypt as we go into the Promised Land? Again, I I urge you to look more into this because we could 
We could spend weeks and weeks just on that. Fine. So the conquest looks different than what we thought. It's not your typical kind of conquest. It's not, you know, absolute wiping out genocide. But there are, there are troubling verses in the book of Joshua. There's roughly 14 times when it says, like the one I read earlier, that all were exterminated, including the sheep. All right, so the first thing to say about these verses is that, sure, yeah, there were battles, and probably some people died, but they were not, not everybody was exterminated. They couldn't have been. The clearest example of this is the very end of the book of Joshua, which is maybe the most famous part of the book of Joshua. There at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua stands in front of his people. He's an old man, and he says, choose this day who you're going to serve. Which God are you going to serve? You've got a lot of gods to choose from. You can choose the Canaanite gods. You can choose the Egyptian gods, right? Because Egyptians were present. He talks about the Egyptian gods. And he says, or you can choose Yahweh. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Maybe you've seen that on a doormat or cross-stitched or in loopy cursive script in somebody's house. I'm sure you've seen it at some point. So that is, a, that is a very common phrase. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Why is Joshua only talking about his house? Because the Canaanites are still there. They, didn't, they weren't exterminated. They weren't all wiped off the face of the map. They're everywhere. Uh, some commentators talk about it this way. They say there's a majority report and a minority report. The majority report is just like um, just like a, a football game, right? So you, you go to a football like last night CSU actually won. Hey, that's amazing. Other times, the other times CSU, not only do they lose, but they get exterminated. They get obliterated. They get totally wiped out, destroyed. Now, do they actually get destroyed? No. Now they go back to the locker room, they sit in their ice bath, I don't know, whatever football players do. Um, they're fine, they lick their wounds, and then they go to the gym. Um, but but, but they're, they're not actually wiped out and obliterated. So we use that language in sports, and now it's not exactly the same thing, but there's a similar kind of hyperbole exaggeration going on here in the Bible. The Bible likes to use this exaggerated language to talk about something. And so that's, that is what's going on here. And because if it were factual, if the majority report was factual, then there wouldn't be Canaanites left in the land. They would have all been wiped out. So then there's the minority report. And the minority report is pretty straightforward. The minority report is basically just like, yeah, we won the battle, and then I met a really nice woman. She's Canaanite, we got married, and now we have a mixed faith marriage, and we're trying to work it out. That's, that's really what happened a lot, like a ton. Um, like normal human kinds of things. And, and they had to navigate that as well, and they did. And we're actually going to talk about that a lot next week, is the relationship to the Canaanites and how complex that was, especially with this one amazing figure named Rahab. We'll, we'll focus on her next week. Now, the last thing I want to say, so that's, that's next week. This is the very last thing I want to say, and it actually has to do with the, the scripture that I read earlier. It's this uh, very um, interesting vision that, that Joshua has. It's the eve of battle. He's about to go into Jericho, and he has a vision where he meets with a sort of God kind of figure. 
And this is actually a pretty common story in the ancient Near East. They have these stories in Egypt, they have them in a lot of other places. What happens is, is this mighty warrior is about to go into battle and then a god visits him and the god brings a sword and he gives the sword to the commander or the general or whatever and then the general uses it to win the battle. This story doesn't quite go like that. This story instead has the vision, has the commander, has the sword, but he doesn't give the sword. The commander of the Lord's army keeps the sword. And then there's this amazing question from Joshua where he says, whose side are you on? And maybe he asks because he's not getting the sword. You know, so he's like, are they going to get the sword? Who's going to get the sword? So he says, whose side are you on? And the commander of the Lord's army says, neither. That's amazing. This is God's people. And he says, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. So then Joshua's like, well, what do you want me to do? And he says, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. It's about my holiness, not about you winning. That's amazing. That story is amazing. That, I think, sums up what is at central about the book of Joshua. It's not about sides. It's not even about winning. It's about being faithful, strong, courageous to the Lord. God does not take sides. Not in war, not in culture, not even in elections. God does not need our weapons. God does not need our wealth. God does not need our walls, and he does not need our authoritarian warlords. Later, about 1,100 years later, a new Joshua, whose name in Aramaic is named Jesus, but it's the same name in Hebrew, Joshua. He crosses the Jordan River and he goes into the Judean desert, which is where Jericho is. And while he's in the Judean desert, he's, he's visited by an angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord offers to assist him in his mission. But this is the wrong offer. And the angel of the Lord is not speaking for God. The angel of the Lord is speaking for himself. Jesus refuses this offer. But he doesn't refuse not because he is not going to conquer his enemies, which are sin and death, but because he knew the thing that he needed most. He didn't need the power of this angel. He didn't need his weapons. He didn't need anything that this angel was offering. It's Satan, by the way. Did that, you guys get that? Yeah, all right. What he needed most was to worship the one true God, to worship his Father. He knew that what mattered above all was not whether or not God was on his side, but whether or not he was on the side of the Lord. Amen. Lord, please take this word and bring fruit from it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.